gestating the curious minds involves adult themes and situations. Just a warning. There, I hit record. The fan is still Thank going. You. We can't have the real show. No one's going to hear it. They hear it. There they was one episode it. you and I did where the fan was on, and you could just hear it the entire time in the background. What does it sound like? A constant dull droning? There it goes. There, now it's stopped. Yeah, it just sounds like ring going on in the background the entire time. We're like, nah, podcasting jokes. Yep, 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 yep. But there's just a fan going on in the background. Yeah, but at least we're cool. I think our listeners would enjoy knowing that we're comfortable. <laughs> it's too fucking hot out. Here in the great city of Minneapolis, it is like 90 degrees with a 60-something dew point. It's insanely hot. Tuck your beard behind your... Microphone? Yeah. While we were waiting to record, Gertie wants to try to imagine what I look like without any kind of facial hair. But if I don't have facial hair, my chin clearly slopes into my chest, which the people <laughs> at Unsighted got to see all of that. And I don't know why you want to pretend like that's that's my life. Do you want to be dating a human thumb? It's kind of hot, yeah. A thumb's hot. Yeah. Thumb head is hot. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Gestating the Curious Minds, where we decided to podcast after getting drunk at sushi. That was your crazy quip? That's my crazy quip. No, you like, like it? traveling the fields of verse or anything like that? This time we just get drunk eating sushi? <laughs> I think that's pretty goddamn pretentious, is it not? Yeah, it is. You know, you and I promised that we would never... Um, I wasn't trying to gloss over what you just said. I have an agenda, so I'm just moving on. <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Moving on. I have a thing that's been boiling in my mind this entire time, which is that we bought a bunch of seltzers uh, last a week ago. Ugh. And you buy the seltzers, you're like, this looks delicious. Some weird band or brand called Boca or something like that. Bolo. Bolo. Bobo. Who Bolo. knows what? Bolo. And she cracks one open and uh, takes in the delicious nectar, its fruity flavors, and all the bubbliness and all the alcohol that's in there to make you happy while we watched uh, the movie, a Bollywood movie called GGG, which is R -R -R. insane. Oh, you're right. RRR. Damn it. Why did I say GGG? I don't know. Hmm. I always wanted to watch Jiggly. <laughs> Jiggly? With Jennifer Lopez? Yeah. <laughs> and Ben Affleck? <laughs> and for some reason in my mind, this is the closest I'm going to get, so I want to pretend well, I watched that, it. Was like 2003? I don't know. I never watched it. I have no idea what it is. Oh, are you going to look it up now? I'm going to look it up. While you look that up, so we're sitting there watching RRR, and it is a really good movie that's completely insane, and also like adorable and sweet, and it's just really good. So we're enjoying it. And then all of a sudden she goes, mmm, with a mouthful of alcohol. And uh, I go, what's going on? Are you okay? And she's like, mmm, mmm. And she runs over to the basement sink that I always pee in and spits out. <laughs> what did you spit out? A, a whole, an entire bug. A whole big long, whole with like a shell bug. on its back, like little shells for wings kind of thing. Bug. All its legs there, like the entire bug. Yeah. She spat a it into the sink. That's just been pickling in that seltzer. And for we're God hanging out in the basement. And I was like, maybe this bug crawled in when she wasn't looking. So I looked when she spit it in the sink, and it's not moving. That thing has been dead for a while, just laying there. That thing didn't just drop in recently. That thing's been there for days. <laughs> and uh, so that was disgusting, and that kind of ruined the night. And ever since then, every time I have anything in a can, I'm sluicing it through the gaps in my teeth 
because I don't want anything to go into my mouth. Yeah. I am con- I'm just obsessed with the concept of bugs in cans now. Uh, which is completely understandable. I never thought it would happen to me. I'm an after-school <laughs> special. I've heard about mice. That was like a strange brew, the movie Strange Brew. They always made jokes about mice being in your beer bottle. I would have been fine with... Well, no, I wouldn't have been fine. That'd be but way worse. If there was a piece of bug that bounced around, sure. okay, I guess that happens, but it was an entire fucking bug. It's been our theme for it the whole week. It was a whole bug. Everything's been I took a sip and I thought, hey, seltzer should not be chunky. <laughs> what did you think when you, saw, when you thought chunky? Were you thinking there'd be like little chunks of cheese in there for fun? Ooh, cheese, a little treat for you. Cheese would be nice. It's like a little charcuterie board along with your <laughs> seltzer. I'm good with that. But yeah. it wasn't that. I took a sip of what should have been a plain seltzer, mm-hmm. uh, a carbonated thin liquid, mm-hmm. and I felt something bounce against my tongue and teeth and cheeks. Yeah. And I thought, that's not normal. That should not be. I'm so so glad you didn't I thought about it. spitting on the ground. I thought about spitting my hands and. For whatever reason, my panic brain took over, and I ran to the pee sink, mm-hmm. and I I spat it in there, which maybe was better because then we could see it, and it's all in all its glory. Yeah, ultimately, if you were to spit that on the floor, I would have not judged you at all. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, well, thinking about it's it your floor now, now hindsight, too. <laughs> absolutely, I would have evacuated. Just sprayed it, it across the room. Sooner. <laughs> like, what's this? And just spray it across the television. I would have been. I would not be offended. <laughs> Well, you see that bug stuck There's to the screen? There's a bug in there. Yeah, be like, ah. There was a bug in my mouth. <laughs> exactly. <And then laughs> oh, God, it ruined the night. And I it just, did. ever since then, anything in a can, I'm just like, Ugh. I pour it into a glass. I don't trust it. So tonight we're having sushi, and we got, I got beers, and you got wine. And uh, my beers just came in a can, and the whole time I was sluicing it through my teeth. Because I did, if there was a bug in there, I wanted to hit the front of my teeth, and then I can reject the entire process. Mm. But uh, so we picked up some. Uh, I got a giant white claw to bring home, and uh, you picked up a, a seltzer called Lover Boy. Yeah, it so is a sparkling hard tea mm-hmm. that is created by um, two of the um, cast members of Summer Slash Winter House. What? Uh, it is. It's a trashy Bravo show. Don't worry about it. But it's totally up my alley. <laughs> oh, that's the reason. Because yeah. you were drunk and standing in front of it, looking through the glass, and <laughs> you just kept staring at it. I'm like, "Do you want to get that?" And you wouldn't answer me. Then I walked around. I came back. And you're still staring at it. I'm like, "Do you want that?" You wouldn't answer me. So then I finally picked up whatever, and I came back. I'm like, "Should we just get it?" And you're like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> yes. It took you a long time to process. Then you opened it, and it sounded like whoever was stocking the shelves was watching an anime. It was really. So it I was asked like, what he was watching, and he didn't answer. Oh, but did you actually see, see a guy in there? Oh, you I saw could a guy. See his head. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I couldn't tell what kind of music it was. It did sound like like Final Fantasy fight music, um, but I wasn't sure. But I'm sure the guy's also just like, "Fuck off." Leave me alone. It was in Minneapolis. They deal with a lot of assholes around there, I'm sure. So you were just one of many for that guy for this for this evening. I take my bow. <laughs> Julie came out in 2003. All right. Well, so what are we doing in this episode? <laughs> we're going to review our goals, and then we're going to actually come up with a title, and then we're going to just yeah. read it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're gonna decide. <laughs> I love drunk, we're gonna, dirty. <laughs> we're gonna decide. We're gonna let's look at our story outline really quickly because I'm curious. I don't remember where we started anymore. 
So yeah, let me look too. We decided that our protagonist, John Stith Pemberton, had a driving factor um, to have a pool at home instead of the public pool, which I pulled off of a uh, when we were making up our list of things that we were rolling for. I pulled that off as a throwaway from some simulator. A it simulator? Was, not simulator, generator. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. driving factors and this Sure, and sure. I know. That's how I got some of mine, So too. I was like, fuck that. That's so stupid. And then, of course, we rolled it. <laughs> it didn't... I think I used a generator and I came up with bats. I'm like, oh, that's funny. We'll probably never get it. And we got it. <laughs> we got it. His fault was bats. <laughs> yeah, so we decided a bat on the neck. Our antagonism so, is capitalism, yeah. uh, which, honestly, I think we... We nailed. Do you think we nailed it? I mean, I yeah. guess. We talk about the what capitalism does to people. You're right. We do. I think if anyone's reading this and not knowing our goal here and our list, I think they would just think the antagonist is Hattie or maybe one of the ghosts. I don't think so. You don't think if so? If anything, John's his own antagonist. He's in his own way. Yeah, true. We got the setting down. Haunted mountaintop. The forested tip. I actually said that to, uh, oh, a friend of mine I got together with last night. Sweet, yeah. sweet John Jackala. And uh, he's talking about a project he's been working on, which sounds pretty interesting and everything. And then he's like, what have you been up to? And I'm like, uh, Gertie and I have uh, started a podcast. It was her idea where we come up with a story. We're going to publish it and stuff, but we're going to do each chapter as a podcast. And he goes, oh, really? And he's like, so what's your first story about? So I told him, and he's like, this is amazing. Where'd you get the name Forrested Tip? I'm like, I don't know. I think Gertie came up with it. (laughs) (laughs) He was uh, pretty impressed with the absurdity of so many details in this story. (laughs) Cute. So, yeah, 1704 is the setting. The place is the haunted mountaintop. We nailed that. Conflict, um, internal, self-doubt because he has a bat in his neck. I think we nailed that. (laughs) Uh, External, he gets gassy when he's feeling insecure. We kind of dropped that early on in the chapters. We dropped it. I think we had one mention of it in the first chapter, and then we completely dropped it. Yeah. We just forgot. That's what happens when you drag a story out forever. straight up forgot. Yeah. Side characters, uh, the heckler ghost, the comic relief ghost. I think we nailed that. And the resolution gets a pool for Hattie to live in and invents Coca-Cola. So we kind of nailed everything. I think we got there. Nice. So at the beginning, we decided that there was a guy who had a bat on his <laughs> bat on his neck, mm-hmm. and uh, the two ghosts that he lives with convince him to leave his haunted house to go socialize. So he goes to the public pool to meet people, and everyone is disgusted except for the <laughs> sexy water ghost. She convinces him to get his own pool so they can have sex all the time in private. He we doubts didn't really her love through for on him. that so much. We kind of implied it, but we didn't make it as heavy as we were planning. Right. We yeah. our original interpretation of that ghost was completely different. She there was going to be a lot more sex, and uh, yeah, and she was supposed to be more slutty, but she turned out to yeah. be like the, she actually turned out to be the nice person, and he was just a horrible human. We didn't plan for him to be such a horrible human being. I wouldn't even say she's nice though, because she's taking advantage of him as much as he's taking advantage of her. It's just in different ways. Well, he killed her. So in the end, it's justified. (laughs) I can't. I I really love the way this story came out. (laughs) Reading through this, I I can I can see where we were originally going, 
but I'm so glad we ended up with what we have. I love that in the end, even though he gets what he wants, he's so ignorant to how much of a horrible person he is. He doesn't understand that he's yeah. just being tolerated. I love that <laughs> angle. <laughs> it's my favorite. It's so he has zero self awareness. Um, <laughs> hilarious entrepreneur ideas happen and his lust for money changes what he believes is important in life before he lands on a guano based soda which eventually becomes Coca-Cola we did meet that you have um, one note in there in all caps saying there's something special about the forested tips in regard to the ghosts what was that supposed to be about I don't remember yeah I don't either. we're gonna someone who listens it was to the important first episode all caps. let us know but I once something comes out of my mouth, I don't remember what I yeah, said. Yeah, and I'm so. not going to go back and listen to our episodes. I might. So, oh, you should I find might. out what we missed there. Because you put it in all caps. It was important at one point, but we just <laughs> lost it. <laughs> <laughs> that was you trying to send a message to your future self, and your future self ignored it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. So now next up, before we read the story, is we have to think of a title for this damn thing. We need a title. So we have a man with a bat on his neck who's kind of a bad person, mm-hmm. and he's looking for money and sex and glory. Yeah. And he finds all that, but realizes in the end that love is what's most important. Okay, but that's all true, and that's a very good point. All of that is something we need to keep in mind. We also need to keep in mind the layer over the top of that, which is that he is completely selfish and doesn't realize he's not actually in love, and the person he thinks is in love with him doesn't love him. Right. And in the end, she's just using him. Yes. Um, for if for her sake, it's good reasons, because he owes her, even though he's not aware of it. Uh, so we have that he's selfish and dumb and blind and doesn't understand the world he lives in. Also, love is the most important thing in the end. I feel like the Germans would have a word for that, and we should ask Wanda. Oh, that's a good point. Well, we can't, because we're thinking of the title now. We can be, we can do this without Germans. For the first time in our life, we can do something without the Germans. We need the Germans. No, we don't. We can do this. We're Americans, which, with today's news, isn't the greatest thing to say in the no, world. No, fuck today. No, not today. Um, okay, so I'm coming up. Not that I'm coming up. So the concept of love is blind. Okay, because okay. he's blind to what's really going on. That's so true. So let's, let's take that and let's add to it. Okay. Or work with it. Massage it. Let's massage it. Let's massage it. Pretend it's Play-Doh and make some shapes out of it. Put it on against some newspaper. Ooh. Pull off a print. Squeeze it through one of those hard plastic molds that has a bunch of holes in it so it makes spaghetti do. Ooh, star-shaped spaghetti and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's a good idea. Ooh. I'll never um, forget the time that I had a uh, Play-Doh set that was Sesame Street-based. And uh, you could make the characters of Sesame Street, like Ernie and Bert and Grover and all of them. And I made a Bert by putting a bunch of yellow Play-Doh in there with, like, some green Play-Doh for his shirt and a little brown Play-Doh on the top for his hair. And you smush it in the mold. When you open it up, you got a Bert, and it looks beautiful. And I'm like, this is cool. I'm keeping this forever. And it dried out, and it looked like Bert if he was 120 years old. <laughs> and it was riddled with cancer. <laughs> so every time I ever see one of those molds of any type, like you squeeze stuff through, like Play-Doh-based ones, I just yeah. get disgusted. <laughs> I killed Bert. I aged him oh. quickly. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work out the way you wish it would. No. So that love Play-Doh is blind. Is so salty. <laughs> Do you eat a lot of Play-Doh? <laughs> love is bats. Oh, <gasps> baddie love for love. Is ghosts, baddie for love. <laughs> <laughs> I love how excited you got. 
Batty for love. We can work with Batty for love. I don't know if that's the final idea. But here we go. Okay. Batty for love. Love makes you batty. Hmm. No. The spirit <gasps> of love? Yes. The spirit of love is pretty good. I like ghosts? that, actually. Because we got to make sure we got ghosts in there. Because it's whatever, very Hallmark movie. We got to figure out, how, oh, we got to make this. So should we run with a theme? What kind of titles do Hallmark movies have? Like the Christmas one. Like the ghost one you talked about oh, for Christmas. Oh, the spirit of Christmas. Yeah. Spirit of Christmas. The spirit of love fits right on in there. The spirit of swimming? No. Oh. You know what I mean? Something along those lines? Yeah, maybe something summery because it's... Oh, yeah. Summertime poolside. Summertime pool season, dude. <laughs> Uh, Let me take a sip of this by gritting my teeth. <laughs> How about... Oh, that's really weird. I'm sure that picked up on the mic. Um, so Endless Summer is always a theme from a lot of movies where like a kid has sex for the first time with a divorced woman in her middle ages. Um, it sounds don't make like that sounds like it's face. a fetish of yours. It's not a fetish. It's not something I ever lived out <laughs> at the age of 17. I'm joking. So there's that, there's kind of those like 80s and 90s movies that were all about like finding your love during summer camp. Summertime wisps. <laughs> what would it be? Something about ghosts, summer, and blind love. Because you're blind because you're you stupid. I call ghosts wisps. <laughs> you like that? You've always done that and it's really cute. I like to call them wisps. I heard that term a long time ago and I thought it was hilarious. Ooh, wisps. Real <laughs> wisps. Summer, hot, sun, pool, uh, poolside, pool party, dude, okay, like pool orgy, dude, oh. velvet, dude, <laughs> red velvet, pool party orgy. These are the worst Coca things to have by a pool. Cola, dude. <laughs> Coca Cola. A Coke and a wisp of a smile. No, a Coke and uh, 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 no. Damn it. There's the phrase, like, have a Coke the and a smile. The scent of a hot ghost woman, dude. Mm, hot dogs? Hot dogs. The ghost woman sells hot dogs in the summer, dude. Hot wisp. Hot wisp. <laughs> summer in jug water. <laughs> the back of my neck getting hotter and hotter. You're doing hot time. Or hot town, summer in the city. Absolutely, always. Um, uh, hard bodies. That's a thing from a lot of movies. They'd always see like in the eighties. I remember being a kid and watching on cable television, uh, like a weird, sexy eighties movie on the beach, and they're like, "Oh, dude, look at all those hard bodies over there!" And they cut to a bunch of women, with big boobs, walking around with their suntans. So, mm. ghostly in, uh, hard bodies. The show, the the iconic show, The Jersey Shore. <laughs> The women would we refer go. to the men that were sexually desirable as gorillas because they're all jacked up. Steroids. Gorillas. Yeah, like really strong and just kind of walk around with their arms not being able to touch their torsos because they're too jacked. Uh, also, it could just be fat armpits. I have that problem. I got tiny little arms that look like cigarettes, but I got so much fat under my armpits, I hold them out to the sides. You do not. I just don't like the way my skin That's feels in my armpits. They all bunches up in there. Like. Anyways, uh... All right, so we got ghosts or wisps or spirit. I think we should run with that. Wisps. Baddie for ghost summertime thing. So we can shoot a baddie for... Baddie for Hattie. 
A wisp's first love. Wow! I think that might be it. You like it? Batty for Hattie, a wisp's first love. <laughs> Let's do it. It has almost nothing to do with the story, but it's funny. No, it's got everything. It's technically all there. That's what makes it so good. Let's do it. You won't understand the title until you finish the book. Batty for Hattie, a wisp's first love. Because she's never been in love before. She's literally the well, first guy she jerked off. Love. She's never jerked off anyone until him. Right. But she, she's still not in love. Well, the first well. person I ever jerked off I wasn't in love with. Okay, this is great. We figured it out. So, Maddie, or Baddie for Hattie, a wisp's first love. Perfect. That's the name of it. That's I'm going to change our notes that say sexy bat guy to Baddie. What, colon? Colon. A wisp's first love. A wisp's first love. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Okay, got it. All right, well, with that, I'm going to start reading the uh, story, which what I read now with all my fuck-ups and everything is going to be our actual audiobook. If I burp in the middle of it, it's going to be in the audiobook. (laughs) (laughs) If I fuck up a word, I'm like, and I go, ah, fuck it, and I just keep reading, it's going to be in the audiobook. Batty for Hattie, a wisp's first love. So stupid. Chapter one. John Stith Pemberton laid back in his naugahyde chair as he unfolded his newspaper. Ah, the Boston Newsletter, the first continuously published newsletter here in the United States of America in the year 1704. I'm sure this will be very exciting. Oh, he leafed through each page, taking interest in the bold headlines as they leapt to his attention. Ah, the English-Dutch troops occupied Gibraltar? Ah, well, that's exciting, he exclaimed. John Locke, eh, famous English physician and philosopher, died today? And, uh, oh, no, 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 no. Pierre Charles Le Sueur, world-renowned French-American fur trader and explorer, died today. Well, that's just a shame. Oh, he had so much more to give to the world, he said with a heavy heart before adding... Ah, Benjamin Heath, the English scholar and author, was born today. (laughs) Well, that'll pan out for the best, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, he said, folding the paper on his lap and smiling quietly to himself. That's enough excitement for me today, Uh, but something on the backside of his paper caught his, his, his eye. It was an illustration of a laughing fish contorting his body as it rose from the ashes of a burning log. With my fertilizer, all your crops can get wet, it said. John's eyes widened at the idea of his uh, petunias finally being as thick and lush as he always fought for in his mountain home. He lifted the page closer, taking in the inviting smile and twisted the fish when the bat on his neck took a crap on his loose silken (laughs) blouse. It was five years ago when the bat had first introduced himself to his life. Back then, he was what the common people called a man about town, a playboy. He took pride in his appearance, and he spent hours waxing his long, intrusive mustache, combing out his full, honeyed beard, and had the the upper body of a man who looked like he regularly chopped wood, uh, and he had a glandular problem where his chest was always glistening with the sweat breaking through his shirt. Oh, his mother used to worry and tried to hide it as he was a boy, but as an adult, he intentionally wore fabrics that, that would absorb and accentuate his problem areas. His legs were thin, scandalously thin, and the kind of thin that lets eligible women know that you haven't stood up in his life for more than uh, walking across the room to get him the croissant 
on those those tiny, soft, creamy feet. Oh, oh, the women loved it. They flocked to him, preening and jostling for his attention. Oh, and he, and he played it up to his benefit. The inheritance from his uncle was starting to wear thin, and he needed to attach himself to a woman of means while he was still marketable. He didn't uh, like that his entrepreneurial attempts at corn husk innovations had fallen through and all he could rely on was his body to maintain his way of life. But it had been his only option. That's when he met uh, Marianne Watercress, the daughter of the wealthy Watercress family. Oh, she was beautiful. He had opportunities with more attractive women of lesser financial means, but what she lacked in her equine face, she made up with the palest of forehead, hinting at her lack of direct sunlight. <laughs> in fact, it only seemed to venture outside in the late evening or twilight as evidenced by all the bug bites uh, covering her skin. Delicious. Her breasts were lumpy and large like enormous muffins, and uh, her feet were so small, so creamy, like, like little custards. He had spent weeks trying to woo her, and she wasn't hard to win over. Men don't entertain marriage with her, and her father was pushing her out to anyone that seemed receptive. Finally, while swatting mosquitoes on a bench in a peach grove at dusk, he had leaned in to kiss her. She closed her swollen eyelids and leaned back to show the underside of her long, thin nose where her lips rested puckering around the one tooth that breached its seal. <laughs> he slid one hand through the front of her dress to fondle one of her many curled nipples, and he could feel her breathing become more intense. Oh, she slid herself over to him so that her legs were now almost straddling him. If he could get her pregnant, he knew she would have to marry him, and it looked like the ball was in his court. All he had to do was lift her dress and funnel his way up into her cloaca. That's when he, <laughs> I forgot about that part... That's when he felt something soft and fleshy slap against his neck. Oh, he thought it was possibly Marianne clumsily attempting to lick along his skin until he, uh, until he heard a scream. Uh, he pulled back and put his hand to the affected area, and he could feel something small and furry flapping against his, his fleshy appendages. And Marianne pulled back, her long fingers tapping awkwardly against her narrow face in horror. Ah, uh, we shouldn't be fingering and pinching before marriage. This is a curse bestowed upon us by Christ from your witchcraft. You've slid your grotesque worms along my silken nipples with the, from the power of your spells. You're a witch. You're a, you're a man witch. <laughs> As she ran, John, confused, but only knowing that something was horribly wrong, bolted in the opposite direction. He felt his way frantically through the peach trees, slapping away the gnats and, uh, and mosquitoes until he finally stopped at a cottage window. And there, in the reflection... He saw the hideous shape of a of a small fruit bat with its with its face buried buried in the nape of his neck. Oh, as he screamed, a person rose up from behind the cottage window to look out at him, and it was a small boy. Oh, his eyes grew wider as he screamed at the grotesque man that looked back at him. Yeah, don't look at me, John screamed, turning to run back to his mansion on the forested tip estate. The doctors knew you should never remove an object that appears to your skin until you were in the presence of a professional who could treat it and uh, stop the bleeding. Though, since none of them were able to stop the bleeding, they knew that they weren't professionals and refused to move the bat. Uh, the best they could do was offer was to, to apply leeches to the bat in hopes that its blood would become clean, thinking that maybe it would just go away. But the blood that it sucked from its small frame only made it more hungry for the blood that coursed through John's body. He, uh, he was told he would have to live with it, and at some point he would have to get full and move on. But every morning when he woke up, it was there. Every night when he supped, it was there. And when he lay down to rest at the end of the night, it also slept. There seemed to be no end to his torment. Specialists told him to wear scratchier clothes, uh, change his diet. But he went into town to purchase carrots and leeks. Uh, the others pointed and fled from him. 
Even Marianne's letters uh, trickled until they stopped arriving altogether, and after a while he resigned himself to never leave his estate again. John rose from his warm leather chair, now we're back at the present time, and opened the French <laughs> doors out into his lush gardens. Though he was a creature trapped in his mansion, he still appreciated the finer things. The statued boys slap fighting in the fountain with water dribbling from their dinks. Bushes sculpted by day laborers to look like gazelles and fussy puppies. And all the hostas. He rang a small bell on the patio table. A butler came out with a single glass of wine, which he handed to John and then proceeded to unbutton his blouse down to his navel and wipe the bat poop off his collar. A warm breeze blew across John's wet chest. Oh, he could feel the sweat cooling under the air's gentle caress, and he was instantly taken back to the days before when the bat, and when he would uh, take pause to reflect before a night of making sex, he felt a hint of being young again, an echo of the vibrance he once took for granted, and he felt for a moment that he could hold on to and make it his again. Then his bat shat a little bit on his mouth before twisting his body to squirt down his collarbone and across his nipples, enjoying the night. Gotta be tough with the smell of shit on your chest, bat boy, a voice said from behind the fountain. <laughs> Damn you, Mateo Gibbs, why do you vex me, John said, and the bat, making a small fart against his neck. Uh, why would you spend your afterlife tormenting me? Mateo emerged from behind the peeing boys, rubbing his little hands together and giggling with his chin buried in his neck. Nah, my life was spent in quiet desperation, working as a reseller of a, as a leather merchant. No one noticed me, no one even talked to me, and even if they did, uh, what would I tell them? My life was so inconsequential that even I have nothing to offer beyond the ebbs and flows of the leather industry. Mateo sat down at the edge of the fountain, a stream of water from a stone dork passing through his incorporeal <laughs> form. He planted his fleshy hands on his full knees and gazed, lost in the twilight sky. John, uncomfortable with intimate moments where people shared their personal lives, began to feel gas bubbling up from deep within his bowels. I wished for death, but I was too much of a coward to end my own life. Oh, I laid in bed each night, willing my own heart to stop, disappointed when I awoke each morning. One day, as I was trying to impress a woman in my store by awkwardly attempting to uh, juggle three leather purses, eh, it was uh, clumsy, and soon I was committed to the act. I regretted it. I didn't know how to save myself, how to exit the situation I created in a way where it all seemed intentional. Each sloppy grasp and release of a purse suspended in the air was another stamp on my inability to connect with another human being, and my desperate, desperate need to be loved by a woman. And yet I continued on. I could see on her face that she wanted desperately to leave, but not even my offending hands could give either of us an escape by dropping a single leather good. We both sat there with expressions of pity and sadness carved in our faces until God finally granted me freedom in the form of a leather strap sliding itself down my throat from a, a poorly timed inhale and a poorly positioned leather bag brushing across my forehead. I began to choke and rejoice. <laughs> the gentlewoman tried to extract the bag from my face as it was pulled further and further down my open mouth. But I held her hand firmly at first, but as she could see from the pleading look in my eyes and the gurgling sounds emitting from deep within, she knew this is what I wanted. I relaxed my grip, and she gently held my hand as everything slowly turned black. I welcomed <laughs> death as a blessing. <laughs> I'm kind of proud of that. I completely forgot. It. It's beautiful. Thank you. It is a beautiful piece of literature. At that moment, John, after struggling to keep his nervous gas in, let out a long, 
high-pitched fart. And boy, what a blessing, Mateo said, tapping his feet and clapping his hands. Maybe this has to change your attitude, another ghost said, materializing next to John, wearing a Hawaiian shirt and sunglasses. He made his entrance spinning in place on a proto-skateboard while cracking open a snuff box and taking a hit. Think of it more as a wet t-shirt contest for one. Maximilian Hamilton, you always have a way of making things look inconsequential and gay, John said. You ghosts are great, but how am I going to find love with this bat on my neck? When you were hot, you used to frequent the public baths here in Chugwater, Georgia, uh, where you were there every day showing off your wispy legs and your broad chest, uh, Maximilian said, pinching another finger full of snuff and hilariously placing it into his ear before sneezing. Maybe if you hit the waters again, you'll get the townsfolk desensitized to your bat and you can find a sweet hard body to make skins with. <laughs> yes, Mateo said, clapping and bouncing on the edge of the fountain. Yes, go show yourself off to the townspeople again. Oh, you know what, Mateo Gibbs? I am going to go to the public baths and they will appreciate me. I won't let this bat ruin my life. Oh, that's the spirit, Maximilian said, looking eagerly to John. Oh, this is going to be rich, Mateo said, dusting off the seat of his pants as he stood up. Let's uh, go first thing in the morning. I'll bring my daguerreotype. I don't want to miss a moment of this. John mm, farted. (laughs) That is the longest chapter in the world. It is. It's the (laughs) longest chapter in the book, because after this, I think I started writing. And then it became concise and not so (laughs) annoying. So I really like your writing a lot more than mine. No, I love your writing. Chapter 2. Back in 1680, Chugwater discovered that they were sitting on a lucrative granite quarry. Everyone was excited about the money that would flood into the community and began to dig out a large pit to start pulling it out. A cottage industry grew around the pit in the form of booths that sold various food and mining goods. Then, one day, the mayor called everyone in town and explained that Georgia's highly competitive limestone industry had contacted him with an even more lucrative offer. They said that he had a really nice thing going and they didn't want a stronger stone chipping away at their profits and were willing to pay the town to hide their quarry and stay out of the rock game. So instead of investing in mining infrastructure, they paid 200 people to form a nightly bucket brigade that carried water from the closest drainage basin and filled the pit to make the public pool. The industry of booths selling food and mining pans stayed and the public pool became a community hub uh, with a booth that even serviced all the broken ankles and ribs from the people diving into the water and hitting one of the many loose boulders along its floor. It had changed from when he was last there as a child. There were all sorts of new entertainment performing for money and dazzling the crowd. A woman who juggled cats, uh, a group of bards who sang love songs and danced synchronously, and Chet Hunkington. Oh, we forgot about Chet Hunkington. He never came back again in the story. Who once was hilarious and well-loved asshole in his youth uh, that now only illustrated the cruelty of age as the town locked him in stocks where the children were paid to throw things at him. John walked timidly through the throngs and jostled for position along the pit's edge. He paused when he found a spot and stood in his flowing blouse and silk scarf that he had wrapped around the bat. He could see some of the younger women in bathing petticoats glance in his direction, and at the surge of his previous attractiveness flowed through his veins once more, though he knew that as soon as he revealed the bat, all the adoring looks would turn to sneers of disgust. He laid out on his bathing blanket, taking a moment to stretch his wispy legs so that his shin-like calves were displayed for all to see. Holding out for as long as he could before he pulled away the scarf, he started by removing his blouse. Oh, he heard an audible gasp from the group around him. His chest was wet and glistening in the evening light. Oh, now, oh, his nipples seemed to rise like a pin stood up on end as his areola faded gracefully into his white, wet skin. Some of the women... <laughs> 
aghast in pleasures. Others shooed their children away so they'd be alone with his visage. He slowly, oh, so slowly, unrolled his stockings away from his knickers, the veins along his brittle shins throbbing in reaction to each small motion of the water near his curled Honoretha Fercosa feet, <laughs> a flower indigenous to his area of Georgia. <laughs> Everyone scooted closer. His timidity lightened as he pretended to innocently pose and stretch for all to enjoy. Oh, oh, he knew he had to release the scarf soon, but he wondered that if he could keep them all trained on his beautiful upper body and his narrow hips, maybe they'd measure his preferences and still appreciate him, or at least see past the bat to the moisture on his beautiful form because it could still provide. With one hand, he slowly untied the scarf uh, at its knot. And he tried not to draw attention to it as it slid away, each wrap around his neck gliding and revealing layer upon layer, all the way down to only one, the one that covered the bat. Then, then it was done. The bat was revealed. The women were still passing their gazes over his chest and abdomen, and they looked longingly into his deep blue eyes and legs that sprawled limply beyond him. They hadn't noticed the bat until Chet Hunkerton called out from the stocks nearby, Holy, holy crap! I... That guy's got a bat on his neck. The children, who normally stood close to throw tomato, uh, whatever, Chet uh, spoke, stopped, uh, stopped and searched out along the waters till they found John. They dropped their fruits and screamed. The women, who were still stroking and covering his body with their lusts, broke from their trance and locked onto his neck to also join the chorus of screams. Soon, everyone is up from their bathing comforters uh, and backing away. John, oh, John was mortified. He sprung to his feet and covered his face with his gro gro gorgeous arms, and he ran for the toilets. And there he spent the last hours of the evening crouching among the wet cinderblack walls, his beautiful feet and buttocks soaking in the stagnant water on the gray-tiled floors, and he cried, his sobs being heard by the others that gathered outside the bathroom door. Some, being bold men, claimed that they would march in and drag him out so they could defecate in peace, but none entered. As the sun set, the water in the pool receded further into granite and everyone went home. John crept out uh, only when he fully knew he was alone. The waters were as still as the empty booths and stocks where even Chet Hunkerton had been allowed to go home. Oh, he walked from one boot to another, revisiting the halcyon days of his youth when he could wander in public merely appreciated. That's when he noticed one booth was still active with a lantern glow radiating from the open window. Oh, he would have simply returned home except for the soft humming of a woman inside. John walked timidly toward it, peering from the distance at a lovely blonde-haired woman who toiled over a large boiling barrel of dark, greasy water. A thin wisp of her hair loosened itself from behind her ear to hang delicately from her sweaty head. He was entranced, so entranced that he forgot the exposed bat in his neck and simply had to be closer. Finally, as he was at the opening of the booth, he called out to her, uh, Who is this? Uh, at, the, at the hull of an angel, and the scalp, moistened as if by the kiss of Poseidon himself. She looked up at him and smiled. His fragile legs felt as if they would snap beneath him. She gave him a smile so warm and genuine, a smile he hadn't seen from another human being in years. Uh, I'm just dead, she said. <laughs> You're dead? Yes, she said. I died many years ago. Yeah, it's a sad tale if you have time to hear it. My bat, John said, interrupting. Uh, don't you care about my bat? Yeah, I see the bat doesn't bother me. If you'd like to hear my story, but John wasn't listening. He felt arousal for the first time in a long time. Here, a woman was talking to him and she accepted him for his bat. 
He instantly felt the need to deploy his old techniques of seduction. He needed to ensnare her, the only woman who would have him. As she spoke words that were lost on him, he turned so that uh, she could see his full profile. Oh, he flexed subtly and let his thin fingers trace over his broad, dewy chest. When I was alive, I was hired by the town's hot dog vendor to boil dogs and be their sausage wench, she said, pulling the wisp of hair behind her ear. I could never afford to eat any of the francs but, uh, that I sold, but I was able to survive on the small tips anyone would give me. Oh, I slaved away over the barrel of boiling weenies for hours every day while everyone else basted the waters of the public pool. I wanted to join them, but I knew that the dog water I was covered in would only soil the pool for everyone else until the bucket brigade came at twilight to refresh the waters. So here I stayed in this wooden cell, stirring and pulling out meat links for each request. And the sweat. My God, the sweat. John, still not listening, tried to see if he could distract her by rubbing his nipples. Then one evening, when the granite pit had absorbed most of the water and the pool was closing for the night, she said, looking out toward the red glow beyond the silhouetted trees. A young boy came and ordered two meat sticks. Oh, I swirled the waters and pulled them out, and as I handed them over, he pulled out a coin as a tip, as most did, but instead of handing it to me, he cruelly tossed it into the barrel you see before me. She gestured to the brown, stinking froth that floated along the top of the amber waters. Trying to catch it, I threw my arm into the waters and ended up falling into the barrel head first. Uh, the, the child laughed. He actually laughed at me when I rose screaming and my skin boiling. John was, at this point, trying to do a subtle serpent dance while locking his eyes to hers. I ran from the booth and threw myself into the shallow waters in a desperate attempt to wash the burning liquid from my skin. But I succumbed to a common fainting spell, and without a couch to catch me, I sank to the pool and drowned. And now, she said, this is when I am forced to repeat the moan of my death. John stopped at the word death. He didn't. Uh, that didn't sound like something she would say if his attempts at seduction worked. Uh, death, he said, stopping his <laughs> dance with his hand frozen in mid-slide down his belly to his groin. Death, she screamed before gesturing at a, trying to catch something invisible over the barrel and throwing herself headlong into the boiling waters. She sat there, her legs dangling out of the opening, gurgling bubbles bursting all around them before she pulled herself up screaming. Uh, her face was red and the skin looked open as if it were sliding off. Her eyes were wild in pain and terror. She bolted for the booth and hurled herself over to the exposed granite toward the open pool. She tumbled into the waters and floundered, trying to swim closer to its center. And from there, she sank in silence. John, stunned at what he had witnessed, paused as he watched for any sign of life from beneath its surface. She sprang up, gasping and crying out, trying to wipe the burning grease from her arms. Oh, she struggled, emitting a guttural animal sound before dropping back down again, and the surface bubbled, then grew still. Uh, uh, my God, what do I do, John said to himself, and the bat squeezed out a thin stream of piss across his chest. <laughs> then, in another moment, uh, he was running to the pool and dove in, cracking his head against one of the many slabs of granite that make up the quote-unquote shallow end. He moved under the water toward where he thought she was, and he was nearly out of breath before he felt his hands wrapped around her waist. He pulled both himself and her up to the surface, and they both emerged screaming, her from the burns, and for him from the pain in his head and the blood streaming down his face. Oh, they both looked at each other in shock and terror. You're the first person to try and save me. Their faces were close together. Blood dripped into his eye. She smelled strongly of hot dogs. Oh, what is your name? John croaked. Hattie. Chapter 3. Matteo and Maximilian were engrossed in a game of chicken leg lacrosse uh, when John burst into the foyer. I've met someone! John was out of breath, by a bat fluttering and eyes wild with excitement. A lady! 
I wooed a lady, his voice echoed around the foyer, which was floored in stone and papered in ten years of out-of-fashion flower pattern. Max kicked at the chicken leg guiltily, but uh, his foot passed through it. Tell me all about it, he chirped. The sight of the meat reminded John that he had not eaten all day. Uh, first, let's let us away to the supping room so that I may fill my stomach uh, the way my heart has been filled. Mateo put his hands on his ghostly hips and rocked his head side to side in a mocking manner. I'm John, and I need to eat because I'm alive. Mateo rocketed the chicken leg towards John with his ghostly wind powers, but John was already halfway through the door to the supper room. Soon John was shoveling food into his mouth while his ghoulish friends looked on. Maximilian, fully engaged with his hand on his chin, leaning in even as John's poor eating habits caused a fine mist of spittage in his direction. <laughs> she has a glistening scalp, healthy with the oils of beauty. John gushed around the food in his mouth. Oh, her hair is a golden field of wheat in the sun. Mateo rolled his eyes and, and flicked mouse poops at John's plate. Oh, tell me more, begged Max wrapped up in romance. John finally allowed the food to sluice down his throat, ending the meal. I will tell you more in the piano room as we enjoy some post-supper music. Well, the tri uh, trio scurried to the piano room, Maximilian floating to the keyboard and picking up a jazzy little tune that made John's bat kick his little legs in time. That's <laughs> so cute. John draped himself across the piano, slowly feeling the music and the memory of Hattie. She has perfect baby blue orbs and a mouth like a feeding clam. <laughs> Such fine flesh is true artistry. Max trilled on the keys in excitement and squealed. Oh, well, what about her snuffer? He asked. Oh, her sneezer, John clarified. That of a Grecian statue. The schnoz of a goddess. Uh, what, a, what about her feelers? Chimed Max. Her bilateral cuspids? Perfect. Fleshy, but firm enough to hold their own shape. Gosh, John. <laughs> How about the sensual parts? Asked Mateo with a greasy little grin, who was uh, beating a tambourine off rhythm. Oh, yes, what a trunk. I will tell you, but first let us away to the keeping room for a more intimate feel. The fellows foot slogged across the house, <laughs> finding their places in the keeping room. John stoked a fire while smoldering into it, remembering Hattie's sloping decolletage. The warmth of her of the fire mixed with the darkness from the stone fireplace reminded him of the cauldron of meat where Hattie had bent over all day, moisturizing her visage. Max belly danced behind him, enchanting the sexual mood, enhancing the sexual mood. It's going to stay in the audiobook. Enhancing the sexual mood. Her breasts... Our firm fruit, ripe for the picking, and I suspect would fetch a pretty penny at market. <laughs> John whispered, his voice thick, and he touched his neck's neck absentmindedly, and the bat farted. Her sex plexus uh, highlights her tender tank in the most voluptuary way. Mateo was belly dancing as well. But he had a drawn face on his belly. Uh, what about that sweet, sweet lower body, Mateo asked, squeezing his incorporeal belly to suggest that his navel had been speaking. Uh, that seems to be a question for the dairy room. Let us away! And the three goose stepped their way to the dairy chambers, <laughs> full of open buckets of milk and cheese wheels. Maximilian threw himself belly down on the ground, sipping milk from a bucket with a straw and kicking his phantasmal legs. John gazed into a bucket and traced his finger along the cream at the top and he imagined the liquid creating the visage of Hattie's face, blowing him a creamy kiss. Her <laughs> lower body is muscular and developed, luckily hidden by skirts. Ha! 
Shadow Mateo, a commoner. Yes, common in economic status, but I know her feet could be fine little cream puffs if only she didn't have to stand in them all day. Delicate and sweet with pearly promise. John dreamily dunked his finger into the bucket of milk and sucked it off. <laughs> Mateo was using a cheese wheel as a foam roller at the bottom of his own unearthly feet. Uh, do you even know her name? Yes, proclaimed John proudly. It's Hattie. Mateo kicked the cheese wheel in glee, and Max jumped up from the puddle of milk that he, been, uh, that he had failed to collect in his ghostly elementary canal. Wow, that one really caught me. The hot dog wench, squealed Mateo. Oh, this is too much. He floated to John briskly and swirled around him, gloating. She isn't even alive. Max swatted at Mateo and draped an arm over John's shoulders. Oh, it's okay, buddy. Sometimes it can be hard to tell when someone's a ghost. Uh, I knew she was a ghost, John responded indignantly. Eh, she doesn't uh, mind my bat, and I don't mind that she's dead. Mateo <laughs> scoffed and flicked at the bat, which shat down John's wet neck. You need a living woman with a lively dowry, John. And not just, just look at this place. A flake of plaster fell off the ceiling and splashed into a bucket of milk. I don't know why that visual imagery bothers me so much. Not to mention that she's cursed to relive her death at that pool every night. So much for a moonlight rendezvous. John waved dismissively at Mateo. Max was nibbling at his nails nervously. That's a lot of ends. How much does uh, she remember of her death? John waved his hand again. Uh, none of this is important. I am fatigued. Let us retire to the lethargy room. The mood was different now as John trudged to bed. Mateo tap danced with glee, and Max tucked down John in, his mind on other things. John looked up at Max. Oh, God, I love this part. Are you happy that I'm happy? <laughs> <laughs> of course I am. Max trailed off as he tucked the bat in his own little blanket, which is adorable. I just don't want anyone to get hurt. John, hearing the first part of the sentence, fell into a smug sleep. Mateo stopped <laughs> dancing and focused on Max. What do you mean by that? What do you know? Max shook his head. Ah, come on, let us away to the spirit slumber chambers. and There will be more time for gossip later. Chapter 4 John's heart raced each time he snuck into the pool area just after closing, knowing he had such a short period of time where he could woo Hattie and potentially seal the sexual deal before the bucket brigade arrived to prepare the pool for the next day. Oh, oh, he found himself reusing his previous seductive strategies, uh, hoping to impress Hattie with his false financial success and skill. John... Stole a neighbor's penny farthing, which was impressive in height and had cool flames painted on the side, and he rode it triumphantly onto the pool deck, recognizing the sheer arousal on Hattie's face at the sight of his studly steed. She stood on the pegs of the contraption as John attempted to steady themselves for their ride about the pool grounds, but its dead legs were not quite strong enough to gain them any real speed. Before they could creep their way to a suitable snogging spot, uh, the curse dragged Hattie back to the watery depths of the pool, ending their night. Next evening, in the interest of time, John prepared an amorphous uh, picnic of berries and cream. Hattie dropped cream-covered berry down the front of her gown. Oh, oh, she undid, uh, undid her shift coquettishly, pulling it down to reveal a tantalizing bout of specter skin as she scrubbed the fabric with water to get the stain out. John 
welcoming his halfy, attempted to return the favor by essentially mouthing a berry. The bat sensed the change in his blood flow and kicked, starting John and uh, prompting a poorly timed inhale and subsequent choking episode. Hattie reached for John to help, but uh, he kept her at arm's length, protesting through wheezing coughs and breaths that he was fine and he was not uh, to emasculate him. On the third night, he brought a boat to the pool, welcoming Hattie aboard with his hand outstretched as if he were some sort of Leonardo DiCaprio. All they stood at the bow of the boat, recreating the scene from the Titanic as the night's breeze gently rocked the boat, and by extension, Hattie's phantasmic fanny against his loins. John felt Hattie's hair and the bat wings flutter against his neck, and he knew tonight was the night for copulation. He snuck his hands up Hattie's torso, holding her tightly while she lifted her arms, allowing John access to her breasts. And he made his move, feeling her ghostly globes against his palms. Before uh, he could make his next move, the wooden hull of the boat scraped one too many times against a uh, granite pit, and the boat rapidly took on water. John considered going down with it. It was later... That same night, John, defeated, lying on the pool of the deck, and Hattie, having just replayed her death, sat next to each other while the bucket brigade hopped buckets of water into the pool. Hey, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've been thinking, trailed Hattie. My curse connects me to a pool, but it doesn't necessarily need to be this pool. John bolted upright, feeling newfound enthusiasm. Hattie batted her eyelashes at him. I'm, a, I'm sure a man with means such as yourself has a pool. John fought to keep the shame from his beautiful face. I, it's, uh, it's been on my list, but I was uh, busy planting hybrid roses and throwing fabulous parties. Uh, I could prioritize it, though, uh, if you make it worth my uh, while. John felt swollen with manhood now that his shoe was finally on the other foot Hattie giggled with kittenish delight and scurried away revealing a well-defined calf as she went John hid his chub from the bucket brigade as he trotted on home Max anxiously nibbled his fingertips as John floated into the foyer. Ah, you look ugly when you're happy, Mateo bleated. John ignored him, heading to the supping room for a snack. Oh, you've been out to, to see her every night, huh? Ah, how's it going, Max replied, hot on John's heels. Ah, I think I finally found my way to Hattie's heart and skirts. I'm going to build a pool of my own so we can have some privacy. Mateo barked a laugh from the foyer. Well, that's a big commitment. How much do you know about each other? Uh, Max ran out of fingers to bite and moved on to wringing his hands. Well, we know that we're in love, Max. Well, I, I don't actually think we've said it yet, but I'm sure she loves me. Mateo burst into the supping room, uh, riding the stolen penny farthing, blowing raspberries. Uh, you don't have any money to build this pool, you turd. Mateo was positively gleeful. John... Stuck his foot out as Mateo cruised by and stopped the penny farthing, sending Mateo's ghostly body through the bars and sailing through the wall into the next room. I'm sure I can come up with something. Maybe I'll start a business. Mateo materialized in the supping room and knocked over John's glass, spilling it across the table. John watched the water spread out over a discarded newspaper. Ah, yeah, yeah, what a mess. John leaned over to the paper and picked it up just as his bat shit landing squarely across his face of the fish mascot advertising fertilizer. Max, yeah, quickly, follow me to the corporation room. I have an idea. 
Soon, John had the audience of Elijah Colgate. John presented him with a creamy dish of guano, gesturing wildly to convince him that the warm poop would be a key ingredient in his beauty products. Colgate eh, poo-pooed eh, his idea. However, after John's appreciation of the guano uh, to a young secretary's face uh, caused a very unappealing dry heaving spell. John also had the opportunity to be with Rupert Ames of Ames Shovel fame. John hoped his fine guano could have an industrial application, though he didn't really understand, quote, work, unquote, and thus meaning was more of a question than it was a pitch. John attempted to gesture wildly again, lengthening his body to confuse and intimidate Ames. This served only to get him thrown out the door by two burly men who handed John, handled John quite roughly. Oh, he wondered if Hattie might give him the same treatment if he asked nicely. John shambled into a tonic water shop dejectedly. Yeah, what can I get you, a goofy-looking man <laughs> with a drying, drying glass with a rag? Uh, we have genuine Jim Bean tonic water on tap here, John perked up. Oh, I love the refreshing sparkle of Jim Bean beverages. The old man chuckled, I love to make people happy. I'm Ignatius Bean himself. Bean pushed a crisp glass of tonic towards John, who greedily gulped it down, belching loudly in appreciation. Uh, say, uh, how many beans are in this anyways? Bean knitted his eyebrows together in confusion. Uh, there are no beans in my tonic, but I am always looking for new flavors, so maybe I'll consider it. John bounced again and loosened his neckerchief to release the pressure and accidentally released the bat. Ignatius squealed in surprise, uh, which in turn surprised the bat, causing it to loose a stream of guano onto John's glass of tonic water. John, mortified, dropped a coin on the counter and scurried out of the shop before Bean could react, his shoulders heavy with defeat and rejection. John trudged home. Chapter 5 Hattie sat preening her oily locks in the twilight as John arrived for their nightly date. Uh, he held a clump of grass in his moist hand, sweaty with chagrin. A ratty wicker basket hung off his arm. Oh, is that my sweetheart I spy? <laughs> Hattie chortled, batting her glistening eyelashes. Oh, oh, what an interesting gift. Hattie's confusion frustrated John. Well, I was in town all day doing business and didn't have time to stop for flowers. But I'm a man of my word, so I hope you'll accept these. John thrust a clump of grass toward Hattie's chest. Well, uh, yes, of course. You, you didn't need to bring flowers. The picnic you suggested sounded lovely. Ah, the picnic. Well, I can offer you this morning dove. John tipped his basket over and a dead bird tumbled onto the ground. Hattie jumped back in surprise. Burp. John, angry at Hattie's ungrateful behavior, lashed out, ah, I assure you, uh, their breast beat tastes like uh, like bacon. It's just such a terrible offering for a lady. Uh, or is it a fine porcelain and rare felts that you're after? Hattie tried to change the subject. Ah, gifts are not necessary. Tell me, how goes the construction of the pool? Is the project going smoothly? Hattie's question stoked the fires of John's ego. Ah, more things you want. The pool, eh? the gifts, the money. You just want to latch yourself to a man who allows you the leisurely lifestyle of collecting exotic moths. You're the kind of woman who wants many fine porcelain chamber pots at someone else's expense. My purse will not fund your depraved desires for chocolate and horse glue. Hattie's shock had been changing to anger now. Fully insulted, was standing with her hands on her hips. John gestured at her greasy apron. Hey, do, you, do you know many horses it would take to make enough glue to please you? You're greedy. 
like that pathetic woman who was drowned at this pool years ago. I had tossed a piddling coin uh, to a wiener wench, and she jumped at it for expense of her life, and just as you would jump at any coin thrown, no matter the man, and John, ever so self-absorbed, was oblivious to the thick atmosphere created by what he had just said. He didn't notice the mask of horror on Hattie's face, the tears of recognition welling in her eyes. John tossed the basket and flowers to Hattie. Here you go, uh, tobacco digger. Uh, This is the only wealth you received from me. John turned and ran away from the pool and toward the familiar orchids. He remembered the days when he was a normal man, before the bat became part of his life and ruined his chance of becoming uh, the very tobacco digger that he was accusing of Hattie. He stopped at a cottage and caught the reflection in a window, and there sat the bat, drawing attention from his beautiful, narrow face. The bat kicked and flapped with each beat of his racing heart, loosing squeaky little farts from his adrenaline coursing through John's blood. John screamed now, primal and pained. He considered disappearing into the trees and never returning to civilization. Oh, oh, he could have lived off the fallen fruit for the rest of the summer and then freeze in the winter, taking that damn bat into the darkness of death with him. Hey! Ah, a voice behind. John snapped out of the mope. A teen had emerged from behind a tree where he was smoking weed out of a pipe. I remember you. You're that uh, man witch I saw in the window years ago. Eh, eh, want a hit? John stared in confusion. You're not afraid of me? Oh, the teen shook his head. Nah, I thought you were a peeper years ago, when I, but then I heard about your accident. John felt deep embarrassment well within him again, considering the gossip of the community surrounding the bat. This bat ruined my love life, my chance at living with the luxuries that come with beauty. The teen scoffed. Nah, you don't know women in this town. Uh, they're freaky, dude. Uh, the teen turned to go inside. You can fill your pockets with chicks, dude. Embrace the bat. John sat in the darkness of the orchard for a while. When John finally made his way back to the forest of Tip Estate, a courier cart was pulled up in front of the banner. The courier tipped his hat at John. I have an email for you. Ah, yes. Egbert Mail. Hello, Egbert. How are you today? Oh, oh, just fine, great Egbert. I have, a, have an email from an esteemed Ignatius Bean himself to you. John took the letter uh, Egbert extended to him with trepidation. Was he about to be chastised by email? Was the last 24 hours, uh, could they be any worse? The letter was crisp and neat, sealed with a dollop of wax imprinted with the shape of a bean. John pooped the letter open, oh, popped the letter open, to find a lovely hand written script under the Jim Bean header. If you could dream it, you could do it. Come to the shop right away. I have an important business venture that may be of interest to you. John felt a swell of hope within him. He hugged Egbert to him tightly. Oh, thank you, thank you. And the bat farted Egbert's ear. I will go to beat at once. Ignatius Bean was perched behind the bar when John arrived. Ah, Johnny boy, I'm so pleased you came. And as you know, I've been experimenting with tonics for years. After we last met, I tried the guano tonic that you left me with and found it sensual, titillating even. I, I, I found a way to dye it dark to disguise the discoloration and have added some cocaine to remedy the texture. Here, I, I try a sip. Bean pushed a glass of dark, sparkling tonic across the bar, and John brought it to his lips, feeling the, the bubbling fizz against his nostrils. He took a sip, and an invigorating tingle ran through his appendages. The bat flapped against his neck and shoulders, also benefiting uh, from the stimulant in John's veins. Oh! Oh, this is incredible. 
You made this for my tainted glass of tonic? Yes, Bean beamed again. Ah, very same. I would like to go into business with you. This will change the tonic business forever. John reveled in his success. His member swelled with pride every time he rolled out blueprints and donned a hard hat, pointing with the carpenters who were fixing his mansion. Oh, they laughed and pointed through the rest of the month, renewing the splendor of the forested tip. The furnishings were replaced with more modern furnishings, including his own spinning jenny, allowing him to uh, carbonate his own tonics at his convenience. He was able to purchase a wide variety of tuning forks, uh, which Max and Mateo used to sing their ghostly songs. Now, in key, a mercury thermometer hung by the door of each room, allowing John the luxury of knowing the temperature. Each dollar spent was a band-aid upon John's tonic, or toxic masculinity. <laughs> he was healed. With his newfound wealth and success, he found confidence. The townspeople no longer avoided him. All oh, they traded their gossip of his status as a man, um, a man which to that of which an eligible bachelor. Curiosity and whispers of this and many fine thermometers grew amongst the townspeople, affording John many new acquaintances. Once uh, the gardens and the manor were restored and beautified, John threw parties attended by townsfolk from near and far. John lived with freedom for the first time in years, allowing his bat to flit and flap with abandon in the open air. In fact, this seemed to draw a certain type of person in. It turned out that the teen in the orchard was right. The women of this community had much to offer by way of sensuality. Of the more creative type, parties turned to messy celebrations of writhing bodies. Partygoers losing garments, ladies with thin fingers sultrily stroking John's bat wings as he spoke of the newest financial ventures. You should consider uh, building a new room, tittered a fine lady with knobby limbs. Oh, one that might accommodate a more exotic kind of party. I noticed you have a lovely piece of underdeveloped property that would make a fine orgy for him. She gestured to the land over there with her drink clutch in her pale fingers. John allowed his gaze to settle on the section of the lawn to which she referred and he fought to allow himself to be lost in the suggestion of eroticism. But instead, he remembered the oily touch of the woman who gave him the time of day before he was the region's premier owner of tuning forks. Hattie, oh, Hattie. That area was where he had hoped to build a pool so that Hattie could live with him. There they might have their own copulation cabana. I do apologize. I was reminiscing about the, the one who got away. You see, I knew a woman once who I was uh, not able to please in my past state. The lady sitting with John downed her drink, clearly ignoring him. I wanted to give her the world, but at the time I could not uh, have the means. Do you see the faded outline there on the land to which you refer? That was to be our marriage pool. The lady flicked her glass, listing for the ring of fine crystal. It thudded and she frowned. Tossed the glass over her shoulder. Oh, she loved me despite my bat. Do you love me, eh, my lady? The lady leaned against the chair that she was sitting in. Uh-huh. I wasn't listening. I'm going to get another drink. Did you say that you would uh, build the forum? Eh? Make sure that you have some fine textiles designed. No one likes to fuck on anything other than silk. And she stood like a newly born deer and trotted away on her thin legs. John, feeling rejected for the first time in a long time, longed for someone to talk to. 
Max was busy bartending for the ladies in an unbuttoned Hawaiian shirt. John would have settled for a chat with Mateo, even despite his vitriol. But Mateo was busy juggling for the ladies who feigned interest in order to gain any proximity to John's wealth. John kicked the discarded glass across the lawn, reaching the outline of the prospective pool. He felt he was at an important fork in the metaphorical road of life. The parties and money did not remove the lump in his throat he felt for a time that he remembered Hattie. Do you have any snacks? Slurred a lady, stumbling to John and leaning heavily on his shoulder. Uh, By the way, I think it's hot how you have this bat. The lady tongued the bat's toes with her pale, dry tongue. John realized how empty his life was. I need to go. Uh, I'm going to lose Hattie forever. I'm in love. John tore himself free from the drunken, snackish lady, allowing her to tumble onto the grass. Uh, where are you taking the bat? She called after him. To the woman I love, John shouted over his shoulder, where his bat sat with a prideful boner. Oh, the party had, become to, had come to a halt. With this unexpected outburst, the partygoers looked on each other in confusion. Max slow clapped. Chapter 7 Dawn had arrived to the pool. Birds sang from their perches while the bucket brigade humped water into the pool by the gallon. John pushed through their line to see Hattie sitting on the pool deck, kicking her feet in the water and eating a hot dog and licking mustard off her fingers. John, winded, fell to his knees at her feet. What? Hattie asked. John's delicate trachea whistled with the effort of running. I'm so sorry we fought. Uh, "'What about killing me?' Hattie asked through a bite of boiled wiener. "'Yes, I suppose every argument's like a small death, but but love will mend us.' John cupped Hattie's hands in his. "'You loved me before I was rich, and you didn't sexualize my bat. "'You're the most meaningful thing in my life, not money.' Hattie pulled her right hand away so she continued eating her hot dog. Uh, you, "'You weren't rich?' If you marry me, I will be the happiest man on the planet, John presented Hattie with a fine brooch that he had previously stolen from one of the pre-bat suitors. Harriet, will you marry me? Oh, uh, Hattie isn't sure for Harriet, it's just Hattie. And I don't love you. And by admitting that you killed me, my curse has been broken, so I'm grateful for that, even though you uh, caused it in the first place. John wasn't listening. Hattie finished her hot dog and considered her empty, ketchup-covered hand. Yeah, all right. John's bat farted. The garden of the forested tip was decorated with the with white lanterns and flowers. Fine linens covered the many tables, which were covered with delicate tea sandwiches and cakes. All of Cutwater was in attendance to the biggest wedding of the decade. Max wept as Hattie floated down the aisle in her first greaseless dress of her life. Mateo was perched in a front row seat, sitting upside down so that his butt was where his head should be. Ignatius Bean stood proudly at the end of the aisle, ready to officiate the wedding. Man cannot survive on money alone. It's like having a a sauerkraut and ketchup with no mustard. I am honored to unite these two souls in holy matrimony. Do do you have your your own vows? John cleared his throat, sweating now in excitement in addition to his glandular abnormality. Hattie, your love makes me ravenous. You are the condiments to my wiener. Uh, what about the bun? asked a curious member of the bucket brigade from the bride's side of the ceremony seating. Uh, the bun's implied, John waved the question away dismissively. Hattie opened her mouth to speak her vows, and John popped a sausage in, wrapping his own mouth around the other end, and munched aggressively until their lips met, legally marking their union. 
John and Hattie danced dreamily at the reception as the guests supped and mingled, and Ignatius served his and John's tonic proudly. What kind of what kind of beans are in this? asked the guest. Uh, beans Coke tonic is not made of beans for the last time. Maybe you should consider changing your business name to Jim Beam, chimed John from the dance floor. Hmm, Jim Beam, mused Ignatius. It certainly has a ring to it. John and Ignatius gave each other finger guns. Prologue. At the end of the night, John and Hattie retired to the copulation cabana next to their marriage pool. John vibrated with excitement at the opportunity to finally consummate his relationship with Hattie's incorporeal form. Ah, there's something you should know about me, Hattie whispered. I was so busy slinging wieners that I never got the chance to better dip the hot dog. John was shocked. You never boarded the beef bus? <laughs> no, I've never had a hot beef injection. John unbuttoned his pants uh, to uh, reveal his penis. It was thinner than he thought it would be, certainly thinner than a hot dog. And she decided to treat it as such and wrapped a greasy hand around it. John pulled her close so that she had to angle her wrist in a, in a strangle angle. And he breathed heavily into her ear, bat flapping against her face in response to John's elevated heart rate. Oh, Hattie pushed against him, annoyed. John didn't notice. Oh, come on, Miss Pemberton, aren't you a naughty girl? And Hattie turned her head so John wouldn't see the disgust. She tugged a couple of times more, avoiding John's hot breath and an uninspired dirty talk. John ejaculated into Hattie's ghostly hand, which could not hold the juices because she's a ghost. The end. Thank you so much for enjoying <laughs> Batty for Hattie, A Wisp's First Love, written lovingly by Glenn and Gertie Nuzzles. <laughs> well, that's uh, I guess that's it for this week. So I guess we're going to come up with a big list of things to roll for. Yeah, and, and we'll then, be back for another story. A yeah. season two, if you will. Season two, with not even nary a break. We're just going to do it next week. <laughs> Diving right back in. Because we're machines. Also, I got to figure out how to publish this thing on Amazon. So that's going to be pretty weird. And everything that you just heard right now is going to be the actual audiobook burps, giggles, and everything. So that'll be a lot of fun. Beautiful. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Want to contact us? Don't. This isn't about you. But if you have to, my email is glenn.nuzzles, N-U-Z-Z-L-E-S, at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, uh, at House Nuzzle. Uh, But don't bother us, because we're too busy working.